On this week's episode of Life and Lessons, I talk about my car getting keyed, my elbow becoming infected, why change is something that isn't just done by other people, and why in life you should never wait for permission. Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 128 of Life and Lessons. I'm Sean Spooner, and if you're new here, here's what you need to know. This podcast is the place where I tell the story of growing a business, of growing as a person, and of taking on some fairly unusual challenges, sometimes on my own and sometimes joined by the most interesting people I know. The only thing that's guaranteed with this podcast is that every time you press play, you're going to learn something new. Now, the time is 10 past nine on Thursday and I am very tired. And you're probably thinking, I've heard this before. I know why you're tired. You always say you're tired because you're always busy and you're always working, but no, you're wrong. This week, today, I'm tired for an entirely different reason. And that's probably a good place to start because uh, I sit here now having got just four hours sleep last night. Was it because of the heat? No, it was because of something entirely random, which I didn't expect to happen, which has basically derailed my entire day today to the point where actually, to be honest, I almost didn't record this tonight. I came in the office about an hour ago, um, having got out of bed from having a nap to literally just come and set the podcast set up, up, right? Put the lighting up, put the laptop in place, get the microphone out. And then I was going to come in really early tomorrow morning to get this episode out because... I just wasn't feeling it today. Uh, Changed my mind, decided to do it now. But what is this mystery thing which has ruined my day? Um, It's so random. I went to bed last night, completely fine, not a problem. Got to sleep around midnight, maybe half 12, I think. And then I was woken up by some pain in my arm at about half four this morning. And I'm not sure if you get this, but sometimes when I kind of sleep on one of my arms, I wake up and it's kind of a bit pins and needlesy and it's a bit sore and you can kind of wiggle it around for a few minutes and it fixes itself and then it's not sore and then you go back to sleep and your day kind of continues as normal when you wake up, right? Uh, And I get that fairly frequently, so I assumed that's what it was. Uh, Started shaking my arm, like just kind of trying to get more circulation into it. And I quickly realized that A, it wasn't pins and needles and B, the more I moved it, the sorer and sorer it got to the point whereby it was, and I don't exaggerate when I say this, it was probably like an eight or a nine out of 10 on a, on a level of the kind of scale of pain I've ever felt before. It was this really deep, intense pain kind of throbbing from my elbow. Uh, the whole of my lower arm from the elbow down was basically entirely numb. Um, the elbow was and still is very swollen. It looked a little bit like a tennis ball earlier on and it was just very, very hot to touch, um, which is a random set of symptoms, right? As it always is every six months when I come on here and tell you about a random mysterious illness that I have, this was both random and mysterious. Uh, but I did a bit of Googling. Uh, I looked on the NHS 111 website uh, and then I spoke to a GP through the health insurance and then went into a a&E at their request. Uh, and what it is, what it, well, what it was, what it is, I don't know, still got it. So what it is, is just a, like, there's a 
I don't know how to word this about sounding grim. I am told by the medical professionals that there is a sack of kind of lubricant fluid that sits just below the elbow joint and it holds a liquid which lubricates the joint. And I had a tiny, tiny cut on my elbow a couple of days ago, tiny to the point where um, I probably wouldn't have noticed it if I didn't see it in the mirror whilst I was brushing my teeth. And that must have got infected and got into this thing. And I assume the reason why they wanted me to go into A&E and have it checked over before giving me antibiotics is because a liquid connected to the bloodstream having an infection is probably more prone to go wrong than some other kind of infection, right? But it's very sore. It has literally derailed my day. So I was up at half four, like I said. Uh, I got to A&E around half past six having kind of ummed and ahed a little bit. I was unsure if I was actually going to go. Uh, but then as the pain got worse and worse and worse, I'm like, look, even though I don't want to leave the house at this time in the morning, I'm going to because I'm not getting any more sleep when it feels like this. Uh, so I went to A&E, saw a lovely nurse practitioner who was incredibly efficient. I was probably with her for no more than, I don't know, two and a half, three minutes. And that was between her greeting me, sitting down, having the assessment, her filling out some paperwork and her physically handing me the medication that she had prescribed. It was instant, right? Very efficient. Uh, that was in Newport. So I walked, got some McDonald's breakfast, fired off a few emails and got a bit of work done that I needed to get done today um, in the space of about an hour. And at that point, I felt great. I had kind of woken up. It was my normal wake up time. So I guess my circadian rhythm was on my side at that point. Um, and I felt fine. Other than the sore elbow, but I mean, I was awake, I was alive, right? I had a meeting in the office at half nine this morning, just about managed to get through that. It was a website go live review, which took about two hours. Uh, and towards the end of it, I was struggling, not least because I kept leaning on the desk and leaning on the armrests on the seats here in the meeting room, which is very sore right now. So it was a mix between tiredness and just constantly being in pain. Uh, I got that out of the way. And then around lunchtime, I headed home to pick up my car and drive back to the office. It's about a 20 minute drive in each direction. Uh, I got back to the office and I was like, yeah, it's okay. I'm ready to work. I'm going to have a productive day. I must've been here for about 10 minutes and I thought I literally am unable to do anything. I am so tired. I'm getting nothing done. So I went home and I tried to nap for a few hours. And now here we are a wasted day, a sore elbow, a random diagnosis, but hopefully tomorrow will be better. Uh, I'm going to be home by around, I think, 11 p.m. ish tonight. Obviously, that's late, but it's because I've done this so late because I was sleeping earlier. And then hopefully I can get enough sleep tonight for tomorrow to be a reasonably productive and a reasonably pain-free day. But I don't recommend having an infected elbow. I think that's the the lesson from, from this part of the episode. Don't get an infected elbow. Very sore, not pleasant. Hurts when you move your arm. Hurts when you habitually lean on things to rest your arm. Not ideal. Don't do it. I think that's the update. Um, more generally, updates. It's been a different few weeks since we last spoke like this. I think it was two weeks ago on Wednesday, just gone, that I last recorded an episode because I would have driven home to Corby on the Thursday, if I recall. So had that half day long meeting in the office on the Thursday and then drove home to Corby that night. And that was in time to meet with Chloe on Friday and go and see Ed Sheeran in Wembley. Now that story would have been fairly uneventful. <laughs> if it wasn't for what happened about an hour before we left Corby, which is we met 
at a Weatherspoons to get kind of breakfast or lunch, which is, I guess, somewhat of a tradition now that we've done it twice before going to see Ed in different random places. Me and Corby go to Weatherspoons, have food, go and see Ed. Nice little day out. And it was a nice little day out and it was going to be a nice little day out. But I parked next to a car in a car park and the car who I parked next to, I was within my lines. He or she were not within their lines. They didn't like that. And so 45 minutes, 50 minutes pass. I come back out to the car for us to leave. And something kind of catches my eye as we're walking towards the car. (laughs) And it takes me a few seconds to realize what I'm looking at. And it is a like two foot long, really deep, right the way down to the base coat scratch where I assume, though I'll never ever know, the person parked next to me who couldn't get in their car because they parked like a prick didn't like that because I wasted six seconds of their day. So they took their key out and they did an absolutely enormous scratch right the way across and then back. So it was like two scratches running fairly parallel for the entire length of the bright orange driver's door. It's not even like a white car or a black car where it kind of hides. It was like a big white gash in an orange door. And I was really conflicted at that point because I'm not sure if this is something that I've spoken about on the podcast before, but I've definitely had this conversation with friends in the past. I don't really have much of an ability to be angry. It's a weird trait. I'm not sure if it's good or bad, but things affect me very little when it comes to like my threshold for anger, my threshold for annoyance even, right? To the point where sometimes when I'm having a debate with someone, they'll tell me that it seems like I don't care, like I'm like I should care more, that I should be more affected by this thing. But I think I'm just fairly pragmatic, right? I subscribe to the the very small amount of stoicism I know, which is this concept that there are only two things that you can control in your life, and that is your thoughts and your actions. And so basing your happiness or kind of any other part of your life, any other way you feel on anything external, i.e. things that aren't your thoughts and aren't your actions because they're the only things you control, is just a bit redundant. (laughs) And so I told myself that. And then about 30 seconds after seeing it, I was really pissed off. Not, Not like verbally or visibly, but just inside, it kind of struck me that it was just a shit thing to do, right? I don't understand why somebody would do that. Um, out of some weird spite. And so I thought, nope, I need to be Mr. Pragmatism. And so I went into the Weatherspoons and I tried to speak to the manager to see if any of their perimeter CCTV covered the space. It didn't. Uh, I looked around the car park to see if there was any CCTV that covered the space. There wasn't. I somehow managed to park almost perfectly in the only blind spot in that entire camera filled car park. And so off we set to go to London to see Ed. And there was like 30 minutes where I was happy and it was fine and it's not a problem. And then another 30 minutes when I was pissed off and I was kind of going back and forth, uh, looking at my insurance documentation to see if it was worth making a claim there. It wasn't. Um, and then I got a quote sent to me to repair it and it was like 497 pounds or something ridiculous. Uh, so I had a crack at doing it myself for like 40 quid. It looks all right. I may still get it resprayed. I don't know. I haven't decided, but that was a, a curveball on what was otherwise going to be a good day. But then we got to see Ed in Wembley, which was cool. I've never seen Ed Sheeran in Wembley. That would have been my 10th Ed gig. And people are like, don't you get bored? I'm like, no, they're all different. And that one was different because lots of the songs that I really like of Ed Sheeran's that are like my favorites live 
are songs that I like live because I've heard them from that Jumpers for Goalposts film so many times. That film, which is uh, the four nights at Wembley that Ed did a few years back, kind of turned into a movie. And so there's like Tenerife Sea, uh, Photograph. And I had this weird, very lucid moment when, despite being pissed off from what had happened earlier, despite having just seen that tour a few weeks earlier in Cardiff. So it was, it had less novelty than it otherwise would have. Um, there was this moment where I realized that when Ed was playing Photograph, which is one of my two or three favorite songs of his live, that I love because I saw it on the film from Wembley. And I realized I was stood on the pitch of Wembley with Ed, not that far in front of me, singing Photograph. I had this really nice kind of I mean, you wouldn't have known if you looked at me because it was, it was very kind of introspective and internal, but I had this really nice moment where I'm like, this is really cool. This is something that I've wanted to do for years and now here I am. And so that was nice. Um, that was the Friday. Saturday, I didn't really do much other than go to that car park and look for CCTV. Great day out. And then Sunday, I was off to Loughborough to the Horton's summer party, or as I will forever call it, Horton Fest. Uh, that was nice. Saw Peter, saw Adam, saw Dan, saw a few people, had some great chats, played some Jenga. And it was fun. It was good. There's, there's not much more to say. Um, it was a nice day out. My outfit was cool. If you saw it on Instagram, I'm sure you'll agree. It's unlike me to wear things that aren't just like a black t-shirt. But I thought I'd push the bow out and it looked cool. Um, and then I think the only other significant thing to speak about that's happened since we last spoke like this is to discuss the episode that I published this time last week with Ben West. Now, it's a strange episode in as much as it's a really important subject matter. However, A, it's a bit of a departure from what we typically speak about on here, right? There's not really a strong mental health theme that runs throughout either these episodes or the guests. And so I was kind of finding my feet on what was a conversation that I definitely wanted to have, but one that I wasn't necessarily all that qualified to have, right? Which is actually a theme of most of the conversations I have on here. I'm always the, the least intelligent person in the conversation, which is a lot of fun to try and keep up. Uh, but then secondly, because lots of people, and I mean lots of people, got in touch to say like, I liked it, but couldn't listen. And when I say lots, I mean like five or six people, but that's five or six people more than would normally get in touch to say, I started an episode and couldn't finish it. And it's obviously naturally understandably because there are themes of suicide for other episode. And for a lot of people that just hits too close to home to put it how one person put it right. It's, it's something that from what they tell me, fortunately, I have no experience of this, so I have to just take their word on this um, to listen in such detail to um, a description of a series of events which are perhaps parallel to something that they either personally or through family or friends have experienced themselves is just a difficult thing to listen to. So if you did listen, thank you. If you considered listening and couldn't, thank you also. Um, if you haven't yet listened and it's something you want to do, I highly, highly recommend you go back and listen. It's episode 127. Um, the reason I say that is like, yes, the story is interesting. Yes, Ben is incredibly articulate, but actually the advice that Ben shares in his role now as a mental health campaigner is so important because he gives really tangible advice on literally how you can save somebody's life, right? 
how you can approach a conversation with somebody that you think might be struggling uh, and allow that conversation to create a pathway towards this person who may be struggling, seeking the help or finding the answers or making the progress that they need to make. But as Ben puts it, it's, it's, it's only a, a silent killer suicide for as long as we as a society allow it to be. Uh, and the way we change that, as Ben explains, is by having the tools to hear it, right? It's only silent because we don't have the tools to detect when the people around us are perhaps struggling. And the best prevention, uh, the best cure is just having conversations, just understanding that we all have it within us to have those conversations. And as Ben puts it, right, when you're having a difficult conversation because you think a friend or a family member is struggling, we often stop ourselves because we think they're going to want answers or solutions from us. And it's definitely something that I have had a kind of misconception about before that conversation. But as Ben explains, that's not the case, right? When you're struggling with something, you just want somebody to speak to. So if you're the person who is facilitating that conversation on someone else's behalf, you're just there to listen, right? To be a sounding board, to be a a trusted person. You don't need to have the answers. You don't need to even know where the conversation's going. But so long as you can be the person who's there for somebody, at least according to Ben's very qualified claims, that is genuinely enough to save a life. So if you haven't listened to it and you think it's something that you would like to listen to, um, please do make time to go back and listen to that one. I think it's probably one of the most important conversations that we have so far published on here. And then I think the only other thing to tell you about um, in this quite quick, quite reflective episode is the uh, the talk that I went to give to a few schools in London on Tuesday. Today's Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday. It's been a long week. Um, and the reason I want to talk about it is because I kind of mixed it up a bit, right? I've given a few talks to schools in the last couple of years and they center around the same themes of like things I've learned through kind of growing up because I'm not yet like a, a big fully formed adult in my kind of lifestyle, right? I'm still learning as I go, hence this podcast, hence the last 128 episodes, but there are definitely things I've learned. Uh, and so it was very easy for me for the last couple of years in being asked to do these talks, to just kind of wheel out the same slides, wheel out the same talk and know that it will land fairly well. But what I wanted to do this time around is try and reflect on what else I have learned since I first started giving this talk in this format and then mix up the slides, mix up the lessons um, accordingly. And there are two in there that I don't think I've ever really spoken about before, but I think that they're incredibly important things um, for us all to consider, right? So the premise of the talk was when I was your age, your age being the 16, 17 year olds in the room, I thought that I knew what adult life was going to be. And then I presented a bunch of misconceptions that I had about how I thought adult life would be. And then of course spoke about the reality, which I hope was somewhat empowering to people who are given one narrative who need to hear other narratives, right? And so there are two things that I want to talk about which I believed to be true about adult life, about life in general, probably until I was about maybe, I don't know, 22. So this, these are fairly recent revelations, right? In the last four or five years. The first is that I always believed that change was something done by other people. And as a young person, or even as a person generally, if you've never really kind of pondered this point, 
it's easy to understand why so many people fall into the trap of thinking that change is something done by other people and not you. Because if you look around you, as in literally you right now, at policymakers and politicians and business leaders and sports people and musicians and actors and cultural figures and all of these people who are seen to be change makers or even, I don't know, your boss at work or that family friend who is always doing something interesting. Like we look outwards and we see that the change that is brought about in this world is done by other people. And there's this power imbalance. I didn't actually speak about this in the talk, so I think it's too technical, but there's this power imbalance, right? Where when we look outwards at the world, we see the collective change that is made possible by, what is it now, like 7 billion people. And then we try and somehow compare that to the change that we're bringing about in our lives as one person. And therefore, when you look out at uh, the very carefully selected kind of narratives that we see of this person's doing this campaigning and this person's just got this crazy job title. We look at other people and we're like, well, they're the people making change. That collective blob of 7 billion people, there are people within that who are those who are making change. And I am not one of those people. And I can never be that person because that's just not who I am. Right. And this is something that I definitely believed. Um, and I think the first thing that really pierced my misconception here that that broke through is and you've probably watched it um the the steve jobs talk that he gave to either harvard or stanford graduates maybe i don't know 15 years ago now um and i don't remember the exact quote because i haven't watched it in years but he essentially talks about the idea that all of the greatest inventions in this world, all of the most amazing changes that have been brought about have been done so by people no more intelligent than you, right? And I think that we can extend that out. Everything that has ever been done by anyone, period, has been done by people who are, in a literal sense, no more able than you and probably no more confident than you and likely no more certain than you are right now that the thing that they set out to do was going to work, right? And so it's easy to believe that when we look at those finished products, when we look at those final outcomes of these people's kind of lifetime of work and they've reached the top of that mountain, they've made their change. Well, that mountain looks insurmountable to us, right? We look, we look at what, let's take Steve Jobs as an example, not to suggest that any of us listening will perhaps reach the heights of founding an Apple, sorry, founding a business like Apple, but that's not the point here. The point is it's easy to look at somebody who has achieved a lot and think, well, they're somebody who makes change in the world and I'm just a passenger on this journey. But I genuinely believe, and it's again, I always use this phrase, it's a bet I'm making with myself, but this is one of the bets I'm making with myself when it comes to what can I or can't I achieve in the very short amount of time that we each have on this earth. I believe that the difference between those who can make change, do make change, and those who can't or don't make change is just the belief that you can. And I've definitely spoken about this before in other contexts, but if you don't believe that you can do something, if you don't have the small case studies or the belief or the people around you telling you you can or the, the kind of internal monologue which just tells you to go and try you have no reason to begin, right? If you genuinely think you're not going to be able to complete something, you will not do it, right? It's the same reason why I would not today sign up for a marathon and try and run it next week. I would not be able to do it and therefore I wouldn't sign up, right? And we all look at the, the marathon. We all look at the kind of stretch goal of other people and think, well, because I can't achieve that today, I can't make change. 
and we don't see the big glaringly obvious under our nose middle ground, which is I can't run a marathon today or something which is analogous of a marathon because I don't literally mean a marathon, right? But I could probably go and run a hundred meters and then I can do that for a week and then maybe run a kilometer and then I can slowly build up to a 5k and then I can do a 10k and a half marathon and so on, right? I won't extend out that example for too long because we understand how maths works. But my point is that it's so easy in a culture where we're brought up by parents who, for the most part, look after young people and therefore young people see that the parents are making a change, right? And then these young people go to school and they see that it is the teachers who are bringing about change. And then they go out into the world and I don't know, they go to uni and it's the, the, the qualified lecturers who are making the change. And then they're in their junior role in their job and it's the, the bosses and the managers and the, the guys and girls with the high pay who are making the change. And I imagine just looking around me, I mean, around me generally in society, I don't literally mean like people I know closely, but looking around me, I understand why it's so easy to believe that you can't make change. And if you don't believe you can, you won't, right? And if you do, you will. And so hopefully, although it wasn't as uh, sprawling a point when I spoke to the school, hopefully that's something that a few of the people in the room took on board. And the other one, this is really important as well, I think, is that one of the misconceptions that's really easy to have as you grow into adult life is to think that if you want to do something, you have to wait for permission. And I use the example when I was in this school, I'm not sure if it made me very popular or not, that I think it's baffling that young people are taught that they need to put their hand up and wait for the permission of an adult to go and piss, right? Think back to school. How baffling is that, that you literally need to wait and put your hand up and seek permission, permission which may be denied to go and do something that every human on the planet has to do instinctually and can't like delay doing, right? And so things like that are ingrained within us from very young in our society that if you want to do something, whether it be big or small, you better have permission to do it. Because if you don't, again, we remember from school, if you do something that you don't have permission to do, you get told off. But if you do something that you don't have permission to do in adult life, within reason, of course, I don't mean breaking the law, I just mean testing a hypothesis of yours or going against the grain or starting something that you believe in and other people don't, you can become very successful. There is a massive disconnect between the implicit message of permission that is, I guess, through necessity, I understand why, that is taught in schools and in kind of early adulthood. And then what the world, what our economy, what our society actually rewards, right? There has never been a sports person who is celebrated for waiting around and just run into the sideline to get permission before they do a certain play. Can you tell I don't know football? Bad example, but you get the point, right? There has never been a musician who has been wildly successful and applauded for their creative flair that has actually gone about writing a song by sitting down with a committee of songwriters and producers and A&Rs and label people and being like, well, I, is, is it okay if I make... No, they just make the song, right? Nothing good is on the other side of waiting around for permission. And yet, to almost the exact same point that I was making previously with the idea that change is done by other people, the funny thing about permission in adult life, the permission or the kind of approval or the encouragement to go and do that big thing 
whether it's starting a business, whether it's changing career, whether it is beginning a relationship with somebody, whether it's moving to another country, whatever it might be, right? So many people wait around for permission that doesn't exist and that's not coming. In adult life, nobody's coming to give you permission to go and do the things that scare you most. Nobody's giving you permission to go out there and challenge yourself, right? There is no permission. That permission doesn't exist. There's a very clear kind of societal narrative that you live the way everyone else lives. And that's just that. And I don't mean to sound conspiratorial with that. I just mean that we we're born and then we go to school and then we might go to uni and then we get a junior job and then we get a mortgage. So then we need to earn more to upkeep that mortgage. So then we get a bit more of a senior job. And then we're stuck in that senior job because although we don't necessarily like it, we've got all these outgoings because our lifestyle is adapted to our new level of income. So then we need to keep that level of income to make sure that we can keep up with our lifestyle so we don't regress. And then we retire and then we die, right? And obviously I'm oversimplifying it. I'm not suggesting that everybody lives like that, nor am I suggesting that everybody hates their job. These are two things I'm not suggesting. But what I am saying is that is the accepted societal norm. And at no point during that, at no point during that, unless you're incredibly lucky to have a, a wise old uncle or aunt or a mentor, nobody's going to tell you, right, this is the, the moment where you have permission to go and do the thing that you actually want to do. This is the moment where it's, it's best suited for you. Now is the right time. Everything has aligned for you to go and do the thing. That moment doesn't exist and that permission will never come. You need to internalize that you are the only person who can give yourself permission to go and do the things that you want to do most. And that if you're waiting around for that permission, it will never come. And again, I don't think I delivered the message as succinctly or compellingly as that to the school. Uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> this is all about continuous improvement. Um, thank you to Marcel, by the way, if you're listening, for having me in again. I really do enjoy uh, coming into well any school and giving these talks. But Marcel has been kind enough to trust me to do it three times in the last year to five different groups of students. And he has definitely given me the the opportunity and the platform to kind of sharpen the sword when it comes to testing out things, right? That that talk the other day was very much testing out new material, if you want to put it like that, and understanding what lands and what doesn't. He's always been there for great feedback. So Marcel, I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, it's definitely on my list. In a very literal sense, it is on my goals list to make some moves, some very specific moves, so I won't go into them, but some very specific moves into doing more of that by the end of this year to lay the foundation to be able to do a lot more of that next year. Um, I think I spoke about this before because it's just baffling to me that you can make like decent money by doing something that feels nothing like work, that's incredibly meaningful and that is literally just talking, right? It's just doing a thing that we do every day, like standing up in front of some people and having a chat with them and it pays really well and it's incredibly meaningful. So definitely something on my kind of side project list for this year. And I think that that is it. Uh, this time next week, you'll probably hear my conversation with uh, Natasha DeTaran, who is one of the two authors of The Payoff. Her co-author had to, had to drop out, not fall out, had to drop out uh, recently. So it'll just be Natasha and I on next week's episode. That's been recorded at 11am tomorrow. But between now and then, there's a meeting in the meeting room at 10am tomorrow. So I need to upload this episode pack down the entire podcast, remove the purple lights, make it a meeting room again in time for tomorrow morning, get into the office tomorrow morning, have that meeting, then 
put up all the podcast set up again in the space of about 15 minutes to be ready to record with Natasha at 11am tomorrow. Very excited for that chat. It is all about payments and how changing the way we pay changes everything in life. And it sounds, you'll be forgiven for thinking, like a very dry topic. But actually, the more you uh, read into the, the book and look into the work of people like Natasha, you realize that payments affect everything. And if nothing else, just understanding how they work is a good adult skill, right? To talk about things that us adults should know. Uh, so that should be an interesting one. I think that's everything I have. Um, so thank you as always for listening. I hope you have a good week and I'll see you back here this time next week for episode number 129 of Life and Lessons. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.